Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to today's webinar, Model Risk, the Emerging Challenges and Opportunities, brought to you by Risk.net in association with SAS. My name is Aaron Walner, contributing editor of Risk.net, and I'm joined today by a mixture of industry experts that span the full range from solution providers, industry associations, to bank risk managers. From SAS, we have David Assembly, Solution Lead for Model Risk Management of the firm. Joining him is John Hill, Head of the New York Chapter of the International Model Risk Managers Association. While from HSBC, we have Keith Garbutt, the Head of Independent Model Review at the bank. The role of models was closely scrutinized by regulators in the aftermath of the financial crisis, and there's been an ever-increasing focus on this aspect of the banking sector since. The ECB's targeted review of internal models, or TRIM for short, is now in full swing, meaning firms on both sides of the Atlantic are facing increasing regulatory oversight of the models they use. Additionally, banks are grappling with issues such as the interconnectedness of using multiple models and how machine learning can best be used to improve model outputs. The ultimate aim, of course, is to improve the use of models by banks, and today's discussion will look not just at the challenges, but also the opportunities this increased focus on model risk management will bring to the banking sector. While financial risk models may be facing new issues, they've been around for some time. So before we get into the details of today's discussion, I'd like to bring David in to give us an overview. Um, David, where did we get to where we are today with financial risk models, and what do you see as the main emerging risks posed uh, to this sector? Thanks, Aaron. So from my perspective, again, seeing, uh, you know, again, talking to so many organizations around model risk, that there tends to be this, uh, you know, the number of models within organizations has been growing uh, exponentially. And uh, in addition, there, uh, you know, the complexity of these models, how these models are connected to each other, and then from a regulatory perspective, again, there is more scrutiny uh, across uh, the modeling landscape within, within organizations. All of those things kind of are adding to a system, and, and for, for many organizations, an outdated system. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of the, the tools that are being used to manage this complex set of models, you know, maybe spreadsheets or SharePoint sites or EGRC type solutions. Um, so kind of with some of those tools that again have been, uh, you know, maybe were, were, were capable of managing uh, you know, model risk uh, previously, the, the stress on those systems with these kind of emerging, uh, new emerging risks, additional models, et cetera, uh, has, has really uh, resulted in a lot of teams being stretched very thin and you know, not able to, from my perspective at least, not able to provide the amount of care uh, required for those, uh, you know, for the set of models within an organization. Okay, in, in terms of, in, you're saying teams are being stretched too thin because of the number of regulatory requirements that they're required to meet? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple different reasons, right? So, I mean, in general, uh, organizations are looking to become more analytical, right? And that's increased the number of models. So, you know, previously, right, there was maybe an individual that made a decision on a loan application, right? Today, that's all being done by models. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, trading, again, something that maybe was done 
uh, by individuals that now, again, there are algorithms and models that are, are used for that. So again, a push to become more analytical within uh, organizations has resulted in more models. You have uh, regulatory exercises uh, like stress testing, FRS9, etc. And those activities themselves have increased the amount of models uh, across over in the organization. Um, so again, there is the push from a regulatory perspective as far as new models required to meet those, uh, those activities. Uh, but then on the model risk management side, there is also kind of that expectation that's been set uh, to have a full uh, inventory, to understand how models are used. Uh, to understand when models start to degrade in performance. Uh, again, so there's that expectation from that side as well. And then add on top of that some of the complexities around machine learning where you have the business kind of seeing opportunities or feel, uh, really feeling that they, uh, to be successful and to compete, they need to start using some of these new techniques, uh, better utilizing some of the data they have available. So there's the push from the business side uh, to use uh, some of those additional machine learning models. And then again, on the model risk management team, those teams are ultimately responsible for both understanding and mitigating the model risk across an organization. Um, so kind of having pressures from both sides. So again, when looking at the growth in financial models and some of the emerging risks, I think kind of the, again, just to summarize the, the increase in models, the increase in complexities associated with models, and, and then again, having both uh, the talent and the systems uh, to, to uh, decipher and recognize um, model risk throughout an organization. I, I was wondering if you just kind of expand on your point about inventory risk. Um, is that simply the, the multiplicity of, of models that are around and, and managing models in your inventory? Is that what you meant by that? Yeah, and, and John Hill will definitely speak a little bit more about in, inventory risk. But think of having you know, you're required to understand, you know, every model within your organization. Um, you're also kind of responsible to, within your organization, you know, what is the definition of a model, right? How do you classify something as a model? And again, the regulations kind of have some, uh, you know, some guidelines around that. But again, organizations themselves uh, often have their own understanding and definition. So not only then do you have to understand when, where these models are, uh, and again, a lot of times you may have models that are just popping up through an organization and not knowing that they're there. Okay, so that's a form of kind of uh, inventory risk, right? So do I, first of all, do I know where my models are? <coughs> and then on the, on the second side of that is how are those models kind of interconnected, right? A lot of times you will not have a single model uh, in isolation, right? It's more of a combination mm -hmm. of, of models and maybe even different data processes and uh, human intervention. And, the, and so it's more of kind of a, a process where models are linked together. And, and so understanding how those connections are made is another form uh, of, of inventory risk. So those are just kind of two examples. Oh, but yes, kind of having a full understanding of that uh, inventory, where, you, where the models are within an organization, 
and then how they're kind of linked together and used is is a massive source of uh, of model risk man of model of model risk within organizations. Okay, th thank you, David. Well, well, John, I, I think David perfectly set you up for for the next point. Uh, would you like to kind of expand on on the inventory risk issue and and what other challenges emerging risks that that you see? Sure. Um, I'd also like to expand a little bit on, on David's point why the uh, in, the number of models seems to be increasing each year is not just because of increased regulatory requirements for stress tests like CCAR, CECL, and the fundamental review of the trading book. It's because the line between what is a model and what is a non-model seems to get pushed each year towards the non-model end of the spectrum so that almost each year uh, – regulatory direction is to include more and more software implementations that were not formally considered uh, to be subject to validation would have to come under the validation mandate of SR 11.7, which is something I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, a good example of that uh, would be anti-money laundering models, which um, from most points of view, from any quantitative point of view, are not uh, really models at all. They're transaction monitoring systems, but because of the uh, high risk involved and reputational and financial risk involved with uh, money laundering activities, uh, it, a very clear direction was given by the Federal Reserve Board, I think three or four years ago, that these models also had to be included in the validation domain. So regulatory um, expansion of uh, definition of what should be included in validation also contributes to that increase. Now, to get to um, the topic of inventory risk is something I've been uh, interested in and, work, and have worked on recently. Um, there are two particular problems that I see outstanding problems with having a complete and accurate inventory, which is a requirement uh, clearly stated in SR 11-7 and, and another document produced by the Federal Reserve Board called 1518. And uh, it requires a complete understanding of both upstream and downstream dependencies uh, of models. And uh, that's an area that tends to uh, be uh, incomplete because model developers should have a complete understanding of their upstream dependencies, but very often they don't know who all the downstream users are. So it can be actually a fairly difficult attestation process to develop a complete understanding of model dependencies. Uh, and even with upstream dependencies, in my experience at three different leading tier banks, model owners who are responsible for uh, defining and identifying those upstream dependencies will trace their input data. They, they know the data that goes into their model. They have to know that. They'll trace them up to uh, the first upstream model. And very often they'll stop right there because they don't own that upstream model. They're not responsible for it. They tend not to pursue the question of does that upstream model have another second generation of upstream dependencies. So in my experience, I found that the upstream dependencies provided by developers were also incomplete in that they only covered the first generation of upstream dependencies. Another area of weakness, and this lends, uh, leads to a lot of inventory risk, and by inventory risk, I mean incomplete or inaccurate inventories are, are called EUC or end-user controlled models. This is something that David already uh, referred to. Uh, very often spreadsheets, they, they could be um, uh, they could be they could be SAS programs. They they could be R programs, but they're um, models that are generated on an individual user's workstation, such as a trader or someone in, involved in risk analytics. 
but they existed only on a single workstation and very often uh, discovery of uh, the problem of discovering these models is quite extensive because very often the people who develop the models are not even can, may not be aware of the requirements for validation and for sit, submitting them into inventory. The most typical pushback I've seen is it's just a spreadsheet, therefore it's not a model. That's actually not correct because plenty of spreadsheets can satisfy uh, even the, the uh, a very narrow definition of what a model is. Um, so EUC is a particular challenge at every bank. And I, I've talked to some third-party vendors who provide tools for uh, finding these EUC models, and they said you would be astonished by the large number of EUC models that exist in the top-tier banks that aren't in inventory uh, because of um, just a lack of communication or a lack of incentive to enter into inventory. So those are the two aspects of inventory risk that to me are most pronounced. Um, uh, dependencies between models, and uh, here we really need to think of models in terms of a model ecosystem. If we take that perspective that models do not exist standalone, do not function standalone typically, but they are nodes in a, an ecosystem of models with, within the firm's inventory, then that leads to a, a natural understanding that there are relationships between the nodes of the ecosystem that need to be mapped out and uh, understood, and that is a very clear requirement, particularly for the CCAR exams. Regulators, uh, bank examiners um, in CCAR make it very clear they want a complete explanation of all the upstream and downstream dependencies for CCAR models. So um, those are my concerns about inventory management. The problem is, and at guide conferences, when, when I put this question to representatives of the major banks and I say, are you sure? you have a complete and full inventory, I very rarely get the answer yes. Usually you'll say, well, we think we, we know most of our models, but we can't be sure we know about all of them. And that's the current state of affairs. And I, I think this is an opportunity for automation to find other ways of dis discovering uh, models that are in use uh, within a firm and the relationships between those models. Thank you, John. Um, Keith, um, perhaps um, do you agree with, with, with John and David in terms of the points they made? I mean, is, is inventory risk a significant, a significant issue for you, or do you have other concerns? Uh, I mostly agree, but of course, you know, nothing, nothing in this world is uh, is black and white, including as we were just hearing the sort of the model uh, model definition. Um, I, I, I'm relatively new to HSBC, just having joined last year, and I, I formed the view that it's the world's most complex banking institution, and I'm waiting for someone to tell me, uh, <laughs> tell me or convince me otherwise. So I think then that we probably have the industry's biggest challenge on understanding the full model landscape and you know, aspects of the, of the inventory risk. And I, I'm pretty confident, actually, that we do have, through, just through you know, fairly conventional processes, a, a, a very complete uh, model inventory. And I guess the point about inventory risk is that it's about risk. So I, I would assert that um, it's relatively easy to find the biggest and most risky and most material models in the institution and therefore to capture most of the model risk in, in your inventory. But there will be small cases, edge cases, you know, uh, odd spreadsheets and things that might meet your definition, and, and they may be harder to find completely, but I think that probably in terms of the, the quantum of risk, um, it's not so hard for firms to, to 
you know, discover all the models that they have. And especially with, you know, with, with, as processes mature, supervisors come in, auditors come in, you know, eventually you can be very confident. So I think it's about completeness. Of course, the question about the model, non-model boundary is, is one that I've been interested in for a while because I've always made the point that it shouldn't matter whether something is a model or not. And, and this is something that comes out, um, I think, in 11.7. And you know, it's clear from, from a business risk perspective and from discussions with supervisors is that yeah, we, we want to avoid a cliff edge in, in governance between a, an artificial line that this is a model and this is not, where your model gets lots of attention, independent review, and, and um, great, you know, great governance, and then your thing that is not quite meeting the line gets ignored. So, so then, of course, you know, some in the organization may have an incentive to um, argue uh, all day about <clears throat> whether their thing is a, is a model or not. So, of course, the good practice there is to have a, uh, a continuum in, in your governance processes that covers calculations and analytics from models to non-models. Um, and of course, yeah, what we, I think what we've seen, and, and yeah, to John's point about the boundary shifting, is really model governance being a bit of a victim of its own success. Um, supervisors can see how effective all our efforts on model governance is, and so they want to bring more things into that scope, like um, yeah, uh, anti-money laundering things, or more algo trading things, and you know, more um, AI things. So um, that's that's a a bit of a ramble, but you can see then that I, I don't I don't think we have a great deal of inventory risk from a from a risk perspective at least. Okay, um, David, I mean, from your perspective, do you do you have anything to add to to the points that Keith and John made? You know, it's always always good hearing experts like uh, like Keith and John um, kind of gives. You know, I know I know I always learn a lot uh, just kind of you know just joining the conversation. Um, the one, the one additional comment that I, you know, again from 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 my perspective, um, some of the conversations that I've had is, you know, with with this gr the growth in financial mo markets uh, models, one of the groups that really has struggled uh, is the audit team, and you know, kind of think of an audit from an auditor's perspective, right? I mean, they're kind of coming in and you know. They're look, you know, they're responsible again for kind of making sure that the policies are, are followed correctly. Um, so one of the things that you know, the, one of the struggles that that I have seen is, you know, something simple like model documentation. And a lot of times, organizations, you know, they do not have that central repository or uh, kind of template standards. For for the documents, and a lot of times it's not, you know, a lot of the work is actually chasing different individuals to kind of collect the information that's required, um, you know, from a documentation perspective. Another area that I see is kind of performance monitoring. So again, answering the question, you know, how well has this model done in the past? Um, you know, will you know when will you know if the model starts to degrade? How is it compared to the benchmarks? These are things in a lot of organizations that, again, the information may be dispersed uh, and may even be with certain individuals. So from an auditor, auditor's perspective, again, kind of chasing down that information is not easy. Um, so with, with, again, that expansion in models, uh, having the consistency uh, to have a, you know, a single location or source where all the documents are kept 
having kind of templates that can be used so you do have that consistency uh, across groups, across individuals. Um, and then also on the performance monitoring, so have ways to automate that and then have the resultant information in a single, uh, you know, single location. And then also have the ability to kind of trigger alerts and notifications uh, when, when those models start to perform uh, you know, or degrade. So I think those are all kind of things that, that I have seen in, in, you know, in, in a lot of these conversations that is a struggle within, within organizations uh, and areas where um, you know, organizations can take steps forward to kind of mitigate some of that risk. Okay. One of the points you made earlier, um, David, was about kind of the, uh, the the risk model teams being stretched. And, and John, I just kind of want to get your your take on that. Is this kind of stretching of of resources? Is that purely just a kind of regulatory creep, or are there other issues behind um, perhaps the sort of the increased burden on the kind of uh, the financial risk modeling team? Uh, I would I would uh, mention two typical uh, trends that result in what I view is the resources in model risk management chronically being stretched. One is that senior management who allocate funds are, are reluctant to provide uh, funding for areas that are not profit centers. Uh, model risk management is a regulatory requirement. It also should be a business requirement, but it doesn't per se make money for the firm. Uh, and secondly, uh, there, as has been mentioned many times, there's this model creep phenomenon going on that both the requirements uh, for rigorous uh, modelist management increase, seem to increase each year. Every year that I've been in a bank exam at leading tier banks, the regulators would say, uh, you're still not there yet. We expect to see improvement each year uh, in the, in the uh, goal of full compliance with FR 11-7, which is the current Bible for model validation and model risk management. Um, so th there's this constant uh, uh, pressure uh, for doing more work, and yet uh, senior management very often at firms will not be aware of the requirements and the manpower necessary. So I, I, I've said this many times to my colleagues, and it's true. There was not a single year in my years at um, uh, three different leading tier banks that my team did not have to fall back on short-term uh, consultants from uh, the, the top four um, accounting firms, uh, such as um, EMY or, or Deloitte or KPMG, because we would get into a crunch uh, for some validation pressure, some new requirement from the regulators, and always we were told, we'll bring on some consultants. This is just a one-off affair, and that happened year after year after year. In one firm, I was actually asked by the regulators to tally up the amount of money that had been spent on consultants for my team. And even I was shocked when I added up all the numbers just over two years at this other firm. I had a team of perhaps 12 uh, quants working for me, uh, um, uh, risk model validation. And um, when I looked at the amount of, that we had spent on external consultants, it came to over $5 million over the space of two years just for my team. And when you look at that economic, it just doesn't make any sense. We, we could have hired full-time employees um, and for a lot less money probably because we were using um, overseas resources, which are less expensive. But I, I never won that argument with management. I never 
was able to convince them it's more sensible to have a fully staffed team, even if they're not fully employed the whole time. We put them on secondary projects than to keep bringing in consultants on an ad hoc basis. Uh, there's no better example of that than in 2015 when Morgan Stanley was required to do a resubmission of its CCAR exam because of a conditional pass. I was working at Morgan Stanley at the time, and at one point, in order, this was failure is not an option, uh, resubmission, uh, over $100 million was invested just in bringing on consultants to make sure we would get through that, that challenge. Uh, and, and it succeeded, but it was immensely expensive. So th- those are the, the chronic problems with staffing that uh, senior managers don't see the immediate benefit because it really requires farsightedness looking down uh, the path and seeing that these requirements and inventories continue to grow and the requirements are going to continue to grow. So that is my explanation of why I think we're chronically uh, under the teams tend to be understaffed. May not be true at every firm, but I think it's a a general tr- truth in the industry. And I should point out now that um, the Federal Reserve has finally announced that U.S. banks will only be doing the C-card stress test now uh, once every two years, uh, which will actually be interpreted as a need for fewer model risk managers at many firms, possibly. So there's a second right. uh, I, uh, a sect that, that's going to impact the staffing issue. So that's my view on it. Uh, okay. Okay, so so that is actually going to be an excuse for management to kind of reduce the yeah you know, reduce the focus on this side of the business. I think, given what you just said, we've had a bunch of really interesting uh, questions coming from the audience, and there's one I kind of want to put to the panelists here, and, and it relates very much to the point that you just made, and and it's talking about um, the the risk model review team, and we've had a question come in, and and someone has just asked, how do you prioritize? I mean, if you're talking about these number of, you've got a multiple number of models, what, do you have a kind of a system to prioritize which models you assess and, and, and which are more important? I mean, what advice would you have um, to, to someone dealing with that? Um, and that's, that's the whole panel. Who would like to uh, take that question from the audience? Sure, I'll, I'll start with that one. Uh, every firm today is, is going through the process of risk curing their models. And, and that's actually a requirement, again, of the regulatory uh, guidance on model risk management. So most firms will end up classifying their models as high, medium, or low risk, with much more attention and rigor being given to the high-risk models and the least being given to the low-risk models. So that's how the prioritization is done. High-risk models get the most attention and probably don't need to say this, but all, for instance, all models due for the CCAR stress test are by default high-risk. So they get a great deal more attention than business-as-usual models would get, for instance. Okay. Anyone else? And, and, and Keith, I think that yeah, I think Keith, as as um, is is this something that you obviously looked at? I mean, you, you're the overall head of kind of model review, and and you're looking at the sort of uh, you mentioned the large number of models with HSBC. Do you find the prioritization of reviewing those models is is that a significant significant issue? And do do you have any advice on on the best way to approach that? Uh, it's certainly important. Um, you know, as John mentioned, every firm will have various ways to stratify and, and tier the model population as a, as a first step to determining what the governance and validation approach should be. Um, although may, maybe that's not quite the same as prioritization. It's more about um, deciding what um, approach to take for each model. 
But of course, um, you know, looking across a complex uh, banking group, you also have to recognize that uh, prioritization, there may be different perspectives and there may be a, you know, a global perspective and a local perspective. It could be that um, in a, in a, you know, a, a branch or, or a, some part of a, of, a, of a large group, there is a model which is of you know, huge attention to the, the local management, perhaps local supervisors, local business risk needs. But of course, from a uh, you know, global perspective, it might, it might look small. So, so as the global um, model governance team, you have to be sympathetic to the, um, to, you know, to the local view of, of importance and, and try to manage those conflicting prioritizations um, accordingly. And of course, it can be difficult to get that balance right, especially if resources are scarce or, or time is tight. And then um, my, my view and advice is that the best thing to do is to, is to be transparent with management. This is what we can do. This is what we can't do. Uh, if we need to do more, then you know, there's a funding gap or, or you know, reprioritization. What is it that you want us not to do in order to do uh, this other thing? So uh, clarity, transparency, that's my advice. Chris, okay, fantastic. Um, we had a number of really interesting questions coming from the audience. Um, I forgot, uh, in terms of, I'll try and bring some into the discussion, and also there will be some time at the end of the, at the, end of the uh, webinar to do some Q&A. So please do keep sending, the, uh, sending your questions in. They, I will put those to the panel. Um, I, I'd like now to just kind of move on to the, uh, the third uh, bullet point in terms of um, it's come up a few times so far in, in terms of uh, SR117 has been the kind of the, 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 the biggest move and the most significant move forward and, and kind of trim has followed that. I mean, John, I'd like to kind of bring you in on this question. I mean, to what extent has, has uh, 11.7 improved standards? I mean, how significant has that been? Well, um, first we need to start with the original proceeding document, which was issued by the OCC in the year 2000, and it was known as uh, 2000-16. And that is a document that actually set the bar for model validation and model risk management at all conforming banks, and it really changed the playing field. Um, I was um, involved in model validation a few years later, and I could tell that um, model risk management and model validators were given a great deal more authority uh, by this document 2000-16 uh, because it specified for the very first time that model developers were required to provide documentation that was sufficiently detailed to allow complete replication by a qualified individual of that model without reference to the developers or the development code. That's actually a critical criterion because it said um, prior to that, model developers were very haphazard about documenting their models. And this set a standard for model documentation that really made uh, the job of validation uh, much more precise. So uh, move the clock forward um, 11 years. This document was superseded by an expanded version issued by jointly by the FRB and the OCC called SR 11-7. The 11 stands for the year 2011 and 7, the uh, bulletin number for that year. Um, and just as an aside, I don't think I've ever met anyone who actually knows what SR stands for. So I'll throw that out. Does anyone on this call know what SR stands <laughs> for? Um, well, here's a way. Now you can dazzle your management because it stands for supervision and regulation. 
so <laughs> that, that's the FRB's code. So <laughs> you have to do it this way. Uh, supervision and regulatory, and 11.7, it was issued uh, and it's an expanded version of that document I referred to as 2016. Uh, it went from nine pages to 21 pages, and it expanded a great deal on the concept of model risk management and set the bar in the playing field for all U.S. banks, but it was such a complete and comprehensive document, and, and I'd say very effective document, that it has become the de facto standard for uh, almost all European and British banks. Uh, it's constantly referenced by uh, banks uh, abroad as, as well as Asian banks. Uh, and so far to this date, I don't think any European or other um, um, regulatory agency has produced a document uh, that could compete with 11.7 for comprehensiveness. Um, among other things, it also defines the role of internal audit and overseeing model risk management, which was not a subject that was covered in the original 2016. It also introduced the concept of stress testing models, which is critically important now. Uh, but uh, again, the original document didn't talk about uh, testing uh, models to their limit. So that's a bit of the history. Uh, 11.7 is the Bible, certainly in the United States, uh, the standard against which all risk model risk management is compared and in the regulatory exams, um, uh, examiners will always give a, uh, some assessment of how far along a firm is in complying with 11-7. To the extent that I think every major bank that I know of and probably second and third tier banks as well have gone through a process we call gap analysis, which is comparing their model risk management practice to every paragraph of SR 11-7 to make sure every single point is covered. Um, every firm I've been involved with and that I know about has gone through what we call the 11-7 gap analysis. So that's that's the history of the document. Uh, it's 21 pages. It's a very good read, and it still is what I would say it's instructive but not prescriptive. Now, this document tells um, what the regulators expect banks to do uh, to comply with model risk management. It doesn't tell them how to do it. And that, that's the critical distinction. It's up to banks to find the best ways to achieve the goals that are laid out in 11-7. And by the way, 11-7 does allow for a risk-weighted approach uh, to validation, which um, allows firms to allocate their resources preferentially to the high-risk models uh, and with less resources being allocated to the lower-risk models. And so that's my, my quick summary of the history of SR. Now everybody knows what SR stands for. Okay. I, I was going to take a stab at standard regulation. That was my best guess, but yeah, it's, it's quite close. Well, I have to say, um, uh, 21 pages is, is kind of from regulatory standards. That's kind of uh, remarkably brief. Um, Keith, perhaps I could uh, bring you in at your uh, this point. From your perspective, um, do you agree with John's point about uh, uh, SR 11.7 being the kind of you know the bible of uh, financial model risk management? It's certainly, it's certainly been very influential and um, it's been interesting to be in the industry and see the spread of uh, similar approaches to model governance gradually across the globe. So um, you know, if the question is, has it helped to improve model modeling and model governance standards, I think the answer is uh, definitely yes. It's also interesting, I, you know, I think that spread is continuing. Um, we, you know, we've seen um, you know, other uh, regulations coming out which are very much um, in line. Uh, SS318 in the, in the UK, you know, E23 in, in Canada, etc. Um, 
and I think the interesting thing about trim is that it's actually quite different. And so the you know the ECB have taken much more of a of a rules based approach rather than a principles based approach, as John was describing. The, you know, the, the, the trim uh, requirements include very specific uh, named tests to be performed on certain kinds of models. So that's a bit of a shock, I think, to us all to, to adapt to, to a much more uh, rules-based approach than a principles-based approach. Maybe that says something about the, the um, degree to which the ECB has been satisfied with the, uh, the principles-based um, success in, in meeting the, the principles by firms who are following a principles-based approach. And, uh, David, I mean, from, from your perspective, obviously, you've got a very kind of uh, global overview. Wh where do you sit there on the kind of the relative importance of that? And, and do you think it's significant that the, uh, that the ECB has moved to a more of a uh, moved away from the principles to a more of a rules-based uh, approach with trim? Yeah, one of the things that you know we have seen over here at SAS, you know, kind of initially there was we had a a, a, a big interest in clients, uh, especially here uh, in the U.S., that were you know kind of looking to satisfy all the requirements um, around SR 11.7, and so that was in many ways kind of the driver uh, for us in 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 our in our tool to make sure that you know we completely can kind of satisfy the requirements uh, of the of those you know laid out in SR 117 um, so we did have a lot of interest in the US I would say over the last uh, two or three years we have seen uh, also kind of a very big increase uh, in Europe and I think a lot of that has to do with kind of the, the regulations, um, trim being one of them. Um, but just again, kind of in some ways, uh, lay, the, the, the groundwork that was laid for SR 11.7 has you know, kind of also influenced from a global perspective. So we have seen a lot of interest in, 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 uh, in model risk management or increased focus in model risk management. Uh, over, I would say, again, the, the last um, two two years, year and a half, uh, and so, and, and again, trim is is part of that, but not not the only kind of driver. And we're also at this point seeing that interest also kind of shift um, over into into Asia as well. And again, that that is actually just starting to happen. Um, so again, a lot of it is driven by by the regulations. Um, but I think one of the other kind of things outside of kind of the standards and regulations um, has been just the general acknowledgement that some of the new techniques that are being used, uh, like machine learning, uh, is introducing kind of, you know, introducing risks, model risk, uh, whether that be uh, from a regulatory perspective or, you know, financial perspective or reputational. So again, I think there is that general understanding that there, you know, this is a discipline that continues to evolve to meet the different, you know, kind of um, obstacles or challenges that are out there. I think regulation is a big part of it. Um, you know, over the last year we have seen, and again, uh, John kind of mentioned some of the you know, regulations on um, stress testing maybe kind of uh, not as firm as it, as it had been, um, 
But in the model risk management space, again, we are seeing a lot of uh, kind of reaction to kind of, again, that, that bar that has been raised as far as a regulatory perspective on model risk management, uh, and that has, has resulted in a flurry of activity uh, for SAS. So again, I think from a general regulatory perspective in model risk management, the, uh, again, the expectations are that will continue to rise and, uh, and has, been, has been rising. And then on the business side, I think there is that kind of general uh, understanding and expectation that maybe some of the new techniques, uh, especially in machine learning, are, are introducing um, some complexities that you know, organizations are trying to do their best to both understand and mitigate. Well, that's perfect timing because we've just had a, a very interesting question coming from a European bank on the issue of uh, machine learning and, and some, specifically I'll, I'll bring that question in, into the Q&A side of things. But John, I know from your side that uh, machine learning is, is an area that you've been focusing on. I mean, just in terms of general uh, financial risk modeling, uh, how, how significant uh, is the addition of, of machine learning to this financial risk models? I mean, from an industry perspective. Sure. Um, I go to um, annual uh, risk conferences, which will always have some, a stream on model risk. And I can say with authority that four to five years ago, uh, I never heard a talk about using AI and machine learning uh, in the model risk management space uh, at a recent conference uh, in San Francisco, fully half the presentations were on various aspects of machine learning and AI. So it's really an idea whose time has come. Uh, I always used to say that 10 years ago that I didn't think we would see um, self-driving cars in our lifetimes. Uh, and now 10 years later, uh, self-driving cars are running over pedestrians out in California. So a great deal of progress <laughs> made uh, with <laughs> with machine learning. Fortunately, when there is applied to finance, the only thing that could possibly get lost is money. Uh, but um, th there's a great, um, and so, it definitely it varies from firm to firm how much investment is being made. Uh, there's one outstanding leading firm that I think has really set uh, the bar for employing machine learning techniques in the model validation, model risk management space. And um, there are di many different areas, I think, that machine learning can be used now, machine learning models to offload some of the most tedious and manual parts of model validation. Uh, I used to say that um, I, I did my first model validation myself back in 2003. And up until 2018, I could say that the process was completely static. It really hadn't changed. Uh, we had made incremental improvements. We had better tools for re replicating the models. But it was still a very manual process of uh, retrieving, acquiring the model documentation, reviewing the documentation, making sure it had all the checkpoints, uh, developing uh, benchmarks to test the model against, uh, going through all this, designing tests, sweet tests for independent testing, and then writing up the validation. Some of those, um, some of those um, parts of the validation process can be taken over by machine learning. For instance, there are language parsing uh, machine learning uh, programs now that do a very good job of analyzing content and readability of, of documents, and they could be used to do a first pass on review of documentation, which is a requirement for any validation document what would, to rate the quality of the model documentation. Um, 
also uh, reviewing input data and uh, assessing uh, the quality of the input data and even correcting errors that may occur, recognizing, for instance, extreme outliers as um, idiosyncratic errors or filling in, uh, backfilling, missing data. These are all things that could be performed, call it data grooming or data cleansing. They can be turned over to machine learning uh, programs. And then, of course, the generation of benchmark programs. Uh, model validators will spend a lot of time developing benchmarks, which are alternative programs, uh, as a way of sanity checking uh, the, the production model that they're validating. But there are machine learning programs now that are very good at generating benchmarks based on input data. Uh, the conundrum, and there is a conundrum here as well, because both first and second line of defense that developers and validators are now introducing AI machine learning programs for, for pricing models, for risk models. Uh, there's a conundrum of how does one validate a machine learning model because one of the notorious issues with machine learning is that the models tend to be opaque. Uh, it's not, it's very often not clear what is actually right. going on inside the model. And I would compare it to the vendor problem, the, the problem of validating a vendor model. And by the way, SR117 makes it very clear that uh, if a firm uses vendor models, those vendor models are subject to the same validation requirements as an internally developed model. And um, if, if it's a good, responsible vendor, they will provide evidence that the model has been validated to 11.7 standards. But very often, vendors won't do that. And then it's up to the client to validate a vendor model. And that's a black box problem. How do you how do you validate something if the vendor won't tell you what's going on inside the box? And what do you do if your benchmark or your repl attempt to replicate doesn't agree? The same problem with machine learning. Uh, so there's a issue there of uh, opacity and trans lack of transparency in the machine learning models. Secondly, machine learning models have a huge appetite for immense amounts of data. So it can be difficult for a human reviewer to stay on top of all the different dimensions of data that a machine learning model might be able to consume uh, in order to produce a desired result. Uh, nevertheless, this is the trend. I call it a major disruption. The combination of machine learning and big data uh, is coming, and uh, it's already being employed at some firms, some leading firms, but it's going to fundamentally change the way monolith managers are performing their job. And I, I would say over the next five years, we're going to see a major sea change in the way that we perform model risk management and machine learning and uh, big data are gonna play a major role and it's like that convergence between model risk management and those two other disciplines, which is finally coming. So um, that, that's my view okay. on uh, machine learning. That is the future and I recommend everybody involved in model risk management to learn, uh, become fluent in these concepts. So machine learning okay, is the future. David, do you, do you agree? Yes, we're seeing, again, this has been one of the drivers uh, from our perspective in model risk management. And, you know, John kind of laid, laid out kind of both, both sides of this. So on one side, we see machine learning and AI being a great tool that kind of helps with the overall uh, validation and model risk management. So uh, whether it's using uh, the tools and you know, something that we've been playing with or working on is the ability to do some uh, auto documentation, right, in which uh, the, there are tools that can kind of reduce some of the uh, repetitive, um, you know, kind of uh, low complexity 
documentation that happens, you know, but takes up a lot of time within an organization, um, feature selection within models, or you know, other tools, uh, benchmark uh, you know, comparisons, where you're able to use some of these uh, machine learning techniques to kind of improve your overall model risk management um, you know, framework. On the other side, you have uh, you know, you're tasked with kind of governing these machine learning models. And when you kind of just take a, you know, again, for, for most of these techniques, in some ways the risk shifts from the model itself to the data. And, you know, the way I like to kind of describe it is that model is going to tell the stories within that data. So if that data changes to a certain degree, right, if it's um, significantly different than the data that was used to train the model, uh, or again, the data just has changed dramatically very quickly, uh, there is a chance that that model is going to uh, run into some serious problems. So again, there's the shift in kind of um, governing those models properly. Uh, has you know kind of shifts to the um, to the data side. We've talked about interconnectedness of models, um, but there's also having a complete understanding of what data is flowing into what what models, and and perhaps even having some uh, some measurements on that data. Right? How many gaps um, is it? What is the stability of of the data, et cetera? And understanding it from that perspective is is a, is a form. And kind of blurs the line between uh, data governance and, and model governance in some ways. And then on the other side of you know kind of that perhaps that black box is understanding the results. And so more time. I know you know again maybe about two years ago uh, we built our system to to kind of automate the performance monitoring of models. And when we were doing so, kind of the requirements were, you know, models are, have performed performance monitoring, you know, perhaps once a quarter. Um, but what we quickly found out, and I'm glad that we built it this way, was that this is not something that, you know, is something you can do on a quarterly basis for some of these models, especially on the, you know, reinf reinforced learning side. You need the ability to kind of monitor these models as frequently as possible. And it could be back testing, could be performance, how well the models are doing, you know, projected versus actual. Or it could actually be the projected values versus the projected values of a simpler uh, statistical, uh, you know, fine-tuned uh, model and, and use that as a benchmark and to do those metrics that way. So, again, we've kind of really seen an area where you know, a lot of the spreadsheets and manual work needed on the performance measurement side has kind of greatly kind of that, that has shifted and now there needs to be uh, this done in, in a more automated uh, way. Okay, um, just um, at this point, I mean, we're talking about the, the whole machine learning side of things and, and, and it's something, hello? Is that a warning signal? So there's a sound going on in the background. Um, yes, yeah, so Keith, uh, in terms of your perspective, 
Um, you, you're from the industry. Machine learning is it from the future, or is, is machine learning the future, or, or is it or is DLK CS? To talk in cliches, it's, it's the present, of course. Um, yeah, there's been a great deal of, of uh, expectation for the adoption of machine learning techniques uh, in finance, and you know, we really are seeing that. Uh, but just a bit, I'm also aware that we're we're getting close to the end of the hour, so I won't speak for long on this. But um, just a couple of points. One is, um, of course, that it's all about the fit between the the solution, uh, you know, the machine learning solution, and the problem statement. So. Not all aspects in, you know, of uh, you know, financial modelling um, are you know, include big data and are suitable for for machine learning techniques. So there's that suitability point. And then actually, I think it was alluded to um, just now that the the emphasis or, or the focus for for governance around these techniques it, it, you know, it includes certainly the data, but it also has to include the control framework around the algorithm and the way it works so um, again it's a bit like algo trading you know circuit breakers or what are the controls to prevent the the machine going haywire or um, you know behaving in a way that uh, isn't uh, isn't acceptable in, in live use so um, yeah just just a couple of points there and also of course yeah there's, there's all, all the focus on interpret interpretability of, um, of machine learning tools but we are seeing the the, the vendors and the, the systems um, now beginning to really focus on that and providing more insight into you know, allowing us to peer under the hood and see, see how the uh, algorithms are working. So I think that that problem is sort of recognized and is being addressed already for us. Oh, okay, so, so in, in terms of that, that the, the, the algo classifying machine learning algorithms as models, that's being dealt with? The, the interpretability question, the um, you know, tools are appearing to allow us yeah. to sort of interrogate the algorithms to see what they're doing, how they're behaving, how they're fitting. So it's not such a black box as has been feared in all cases. Okay, okay. Well, we're just moving on to the last few minutes. We had so many excellent questions come in from the audience. I'd like to put some of those to the, uh, um, to, to the panel themselves. Um, and just trying to kind of go through some of those in terms of this point. Uh, we had someone from a, a I'm, I'm guessing it's a European bank, but uh, um, the, the question is: Is Trim superseding uh, for European banks? Uh, is, is Trim now uh, performing the same role for European banks that uh, SR11 has performed with US banks? Is, is that change happening? Um, is there anyone from the panel? Um, Keith, you're from a, a European bank. I mean, perhaps you, you could you could take the opener on that. Well, I'm from a, a large international bank that deals with multiple supervisors and jurisdictions. So, um, yeah, we have been, of course, uh, over the last few years, focusing on our model governance and ensuring that it meets uh, all, all the, the expectations of all our all of our supervisors. But um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I think the difference with Trim uh, compared to the others is that it is less uh, principles-based and, and more, more rules-based. So we, we are having to think about a more um, yeah, developing our approaches to make sure that we really explicitly meet those, uh, those, those rules and can sort of tick them off 
rather than having a discussion around why we think uh, the approach that we're taking is, is adequate uh, uh, from a principles perspective, which is really what our other supervisors are more focused on. Okay, we had a, a very interesting uh, question coming from Australia, and I think it relates back to um, what some of the panelists were saying earlier on about the, the issue of uh, how stretched some of the kind of risk modeling departments are and, and, and perhaps some of the uh, that uh, there's a kind of a, a staffing issue is the wrong word, but perhaps a, an issue of, 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 of people being overworked. And so someone is coming from Australia asking with FRTB and risk-free rate changes, both involving new models, do you see a need for more quants and developers and validators over the next three years? Is, is, is there, an, I mean, I'm not saying that that need will be met, but is there any need in the industry for more uh, quants and developers and validators to deal with these requirements? Or, or, or is it just a question that firms are going to have to uh, make, you know, make do with what they've got? David, perhaps you could take that. So I, I think the easy question is yes. Uh, there again, with with kind of what we some of the things that we've spoken here, um, with with those additional requirements from the new regulations, the additional models, machine learning models, um, there is going to be a higher demand and need for that type of skill set. And it's something that we're seeing today, right? When you kind of look across, you know, some of the job boards, et cetera, you see there there is always a need and an increasing need for uh, for those that have the analytical skills that can do this type of work. So, um, and again, uh, those individuals are in high demand in in other as well. So, um, yeah, absolutely, I think, and, and that is kind of going to that will be one of the uh, kind of challenges moving forward is having the appropriate talent uh, to meet, you know, and to kind of uh, to deliver what we've kind of been talking about here uh, with these increased uh, challenges. Uh, can I add okay. a little bit to that? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Sure, yeah. Well, I, I'll paraphrase a popular book by saying very often, at least in my experience, it takes an MRA, which is a citation issued by U.S. regulators saying you need to fix something. My team actually once got the only MRA I ever loved, which was from the regulators saying my team was understaffed. And it, for the first time in my career, um, uh, my management came to me and said, how many staff do you need to meet this challenge? I said, I think two additional, uh, this was for consultants actually, two additional should do it. They said, you'll take five. I was actually ordered to take more staff than I'd asked for because there was an MRA looming in the background. And sometimes it takes that kind of incentive uh, to motivate uh, the management. Okay. And then, all right. That's, and um, so, so, did you make uh, good use of all five members of staff? Did you need them in the end? Um, uh, well, sure. I could, since we were always chronically understaffed, I could put them on uh, projects that weren't directly related to the immediate uh, challenge as well. But it was short term, it was um, for three or four months. But um, that's the. Um, uh, my view is that management uh, will always respond to regulatory requirements very promptly, and that loosens its purse strings better than any other incentive that I've discovered. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that makes total sense. Uh, we're coming up very close to the end of the, the one-hour webinar, and I just wanted a very quick 
kind of final point, um, David, we've discussed a, a lot of issues here, whether it's kind of machine learning, uh, what's happening with regulation, and in terms of classifying model risk. I mean, what is the one takeaway that, that listeners uh, should focus on in terms of uh, improving their model risk management? What is the most important issue to look at? Um, a, a brief answer, please. Yeah, I mean, I would say this, that the organizations, uh, again, that I've been working with or have had conversations with um, that have the champions within an organization that have, that are investing not only kind of in, in, in spending time and looking at what they can do today, uh, but also kind of the challenges that are moving forward. So uh, to me, I, I always love these type of uh, conversations. I think in general, it kind of attracts those those champions, um, you know, that are really looking to kind of move forward in this in this discipline. So, um, again, uh, takeaway from from me uh, is uh, this is something that is changing uh, every year, and actually more frequently than that. And so, being part of the conversation, asking questions, what are some of the things that you think you should should be able to answer today within your organization that you cannot. Um, making things simpler and standardizing where possible. Uh, these are all kind of concepts and, uh, and, and having that driving force that, that kind of leads forward. Um, that, that's where you have successful organizations uh, from a model risk management perspective. Thank you, David. We're just coming up to the end of time, and um, thank you very much to the panelists for input, and thank you to all the people that have sent questions in. Um, my apologies to those of you that we didn't have the time to answer. Thank you for, for interacting, and, and uh, I'm sure, I'm sure um, hopefully some of, some of the uh, questions were answered in some of the other panelists' answers. So I think just to kind of uh, finish off, I think David's point about finding a champion and looking towards the future is, is critical to understanding the, the direction of financial risk model management. And it's clearly something that's going to become uh, more significant uh, for the banking sector uh, over, over the coming years. I suspect this is a conversation that we're come, going to come back to. But for today, uh, that's the end of our webinar. So thank you to uh, David to John and to Keith and to SAS for supporting this. My name's Aaron Walner. I'm contributing editor for risk.net and uh, I look forward to speaking to you on the next webinar. Thank you and uh, good afternoon.